It is indeed our privilege and pleasure to have the activators from Austin College with us and their leader, Dr. John Williams. Their presence with us at St. Andrew for our Fall Festival of Faith reflects the generosity of Ruth I. Anderson, who greatly loved the church, St. Andrew, and education. Her endowed gift supports many off-budget activities, including the Fall Festival of Faith. I might add that if you have an idea for a project that is Christian in nature and will help people grow in their faithfulness and commitment to Christ, then you may have an idea that the Ruth Anderson Fund would like to support. So please bring those ideas to us. We continue to benefit and be grateful for Ruth Anderson's vision for how we can grow in our faithfulness and ministry through programs supported by the fund she established. Now today, as we gather here in worship, I want to share three things about my friend and colleague, John Williams. First of all, he plays the guitar. Not just for church activities, but with a band of old guys. Occasionally, they even play in public at places like Uncle Calvin's Coffee House in Dallas. Second thing, John has a Ph.D. from SMU in, I believe, church history which he earned while serving as associate pastor at North Park Presbyterian Church. Some of you may know that he served there with Dr. John McCoy, a former minister here at St. Andrew. Third thing, since 2006, John has dealt with relapsing and remitting MS. As he told us last night, when he looks uncomfortable or seems unsteady on his feet, don't worry about him. He knows about it and has it under control. I tell you these three things to make this point. John is a typical Presbyterian. No surprise that he's a child of the Presbyterian Church and of Grace Presbytery. I call him typical not to diminish his talents but to point out that as we look around our pews each week, as we gather at Presbytery meetings, as we read about the Presbyterian Church in the USA, we see people like him with diverse talents. Other churches say they have them too, but I know the Presbyterian Church has them. We also see people who greatly value education and believe that to be faithful demands we use the brains God gave us. I actually wrote that before they gave me the t-shirt, but the t-shirt proves my point. We also see a person who deals with the brokenness of our humanity, whether it's dealing with disease or grieving or other critical issues before us. That is who we are, that is who John is. But it is not enough simply to point out the demographic of a typical Presbyterian. We need to claim again and again the uniquely Reformed and Presbyterian theological perspective that calls us to think and reflect how the God of grace we know. If you were there last night, you heard in John's comments on Jonah 
that biblical scholars believe the oldest theological statement about God is shared by Jonah as he proclaims about God, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we are called into a world that cries out in the midst of its pain and sorrow and uncertainty for voices to reveal that God. I invite you this morning to hear as John again puts his Presbyterian training to work as he proclaims the gospel, the good news of God's graciousness and love for us and for our world. Welcome, John. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, Richard is an old friend. Uh, Lisa is a friend not nearly as old as Richard, but... <laughs> I have many other friends in this congregation, and speaking on behalf of the Activators and Amber, who was with us last night, we again want to thank you all for your gracious hospitality. We've had a wonderful time, and this has been an exciting privilege and honor for all of us to be here. There's a gospel lesson that didn't make it into the bulletin, but there's going to be one more scripture lesson coming this morning. We're going to tell the old familiar story of Doubting Thomas from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31, but I'm not going to read it and then later on preach about it. Those things are just going to kind of get mixed up together. Okay, so I will make it through the whole reading, but I'm not going to do it seriatim just immediately. So just understand that. Understand also that there's a sermon coming, and I hope that, that, did, that title did make it into your bulletins. And, and I was remembering that... I, I was at Austin Seminary a couple of years before Richard was there. And the, the first preaching class I took there was taught by Tom Curry III, somebody uh, known to a few people in the room now, I think, somebody who has a wonderful legacy as a professor and friend. And one of the things Tom taught us as in our first preaching class as we we're learning about things is you don't have to put a title on a sermon. You know, if you think you just have to have a title every week and you end up with a sermon title like God is Love, don't waste people's time. You know, it's fine to just say sermon. He said, <laughs> so, he said so you shouldn't ever put a title on a sermon unless it's something that it gets, gets the attention of the congregation and makes them wonder how that's going to relate to the scripture that we're reading. I think I may have found that this morning. We will cover over the course of this sermon zombies and halitosis and we'll talk some about America. But we will do that as we read the gospel uh, according to John chapter 20 verses 19 through 31. Beginning with verse 19. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and because we've, read it, we've been reading the first 19 and half of 20 chapters, we know that the first day that we're talking about, that day is Easter. This is a story that takes place on the evening of Easter. Okay? So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. 
Disciples, Easter night, in a room, the door is locked for fear of the Jews. Now, I don't care what other people say. People have used this phrase to justify all kinds of anti-Semitic behavior through the years. It's not talking about all Jews. The problem is not all Jews. The disciples are afraid of the particular Jews that they just watch arrest and execute Jesus. You understand why they're afraid of those Jews, right? Ten disciples were in that room. We know why uh, Judas isn't there, right? We, we, I don't have to retell that story, do I? So we understand why Judas is not necessarily welcome in that room. There are ten disciples who are there. And so ten disciples show up, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And again, we're used to hearing this story with angels singing in the background, reading this story with stained glass eyes, like, yeah, that stuff happens all the time. The guy who they watched die on Friday night is now showing up and kicking back with them in a locked room on Sunday. There's nothing normal about that. This is a crazy story. This is a zombie story. This is a dead guy that shows up. One of the old energizers that we used to do, and I think we should keep doing some more, is called Zombie Jamboree. That's what you got going on in this locked room on Easter night. You got a guy who died on Friday that just shows up in this locked room. And he says, peace be with you. Do you think peace was the common emotion that those groups shared at that time? I think perhaps not. But so Jesus, dead Jesus, shows up in a locked room where ten disciples are, says, peace be with you. Verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Notice that they don't rejoice until after they see the hands and side of Jesus. That's a little foreshadowing because that's all Thomas is going to ask for in a few minutes when we get to that part of the story. Okay, so the disciples don't rejoice until first they see the hands inside of Jesus because then they realize that this really is the very same guy who we followed for all those years who we saw die on Friday night. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Again, this is Jesus more with the peace be with you stuff. But notice, Jesus twice now in this service has said, Peace be with you. He does not say, I hope peace will be with you. He does not say, if you're lucky and act right, maybe then peace will characterize your life together. He just makes a statement. Jesus shows up in that room with those ten scared guys and just says, peace be with you. That's why I wanted us to read a little bit of Genesis 1 earlier in this story. You remember in Genesis 1 what's going on? God creates. How does God create? God creates by speaking. God speaks in Genesis 1, and that's how things come to pass. I think you can argue that when Jesus says, peace be with you twice to those two, ten disciples in this story, he creates peace among the disciples the same way God creates when God speaks in Genesis 1. First point, Jesus creates peace by saying, peace be with you. Verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The grossest verse in the entire New Testament. Again, you think morning breath is bad? Think about tomb breath. 
That's the halitosis portion of the title. You get that? But understand, but what Jesus does is breathe on the disciples. You know, it's not enough that he shows up. The dead guy walking shows up in their locked room. Then he says, peace be with you, Trice, and, ah, and he breathes all over him. I think when we read this story, John wants us again to think back to Genesis. Remember what we heard in Genesis 2? That's the second version of the creation story. You know, God takes this lump of clay, puts it in the form of a human being, and then breathes into Adam's nostrils, and then he becomes a living being. God breathes into Adam, and then Adam becomes alive. Again, I think you can make a good case that here in verse 22, what happens is that the risen Christ breathes and then all of a sudden that ragtag bunch of scared disciples becomes the living body of Christ. Jesus shows up, which is a scary thing, says, peace be with you, but then breathes on them. I think you can argue that that is an interesting, this is John's version of the origin, the beginning of the life of the church. And it's a different picture of the origin of the church than what we have in Matthew. Where you know, Peter said, I mean, Jesus said to Peter, you're Peter and on this rock I will build my church. That's one person that you know, Jesus said, okay, it's you, you've got my authority, and then you can, uh, you can, it works through you, through other people that you touch, and that's how the church becomes my body. That's not the picture of how the church begins according to John. John's picture is the church begins when the risen Christ breathes on the disciples. So Jesus breathes on them. Verse 23 says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Again, that's authority that's given to the individual Peter in Matthew 16, but it's given to the whole community in John 20. It's a different way of understanding where authority comes from in the church, and in John 20, authority comes from Jesus to the gathered community. That's the living body of Christ. That's important for us as we occasionally gather around this table and understand that we're part of that same community that Jesus breathed on and received that, that same community that received authority from Jesus to be the body of Christ in the world. So that's one piece of what's going on here in John 20. Okay, this, It's not the main thing I want to talk about, but I want to get this covered. All right? Does that make sense? Verse 24. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there. Thomas is around some. He's not some. He does some important stuff. He's a big part of John 14, you know, six chapters earlier. Thomas is around. We have no idea why Thomas wasn't there that night, but it doesn't matter. It's important, though, that he wasn't there because if he was, it wouldn't be the same story. Verse 25, so the other disciples told Thomas, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, unless I put my finger in the mark of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas gets excoriated for that historically. This is the doubting Thomas story. But can you blame Thomas? I mean, I can understand Thomas saying, yeah, right, you guys must have been in the communion wine. There is no way that you hang out on Sunday night with a guy you watch die on Friday. And remember when we started out back in verse 20, the other ten disciples did not rejoice until after Jesus showed them his hands and his side. All Thomas is asking for here is the very same experience that the other ten disciples had already had. 
But that's where we are at the end of verse 25. You've got ten disciples who are convinced that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. You have one disciple who just isn't ready to go there, is just not buying that at all. Right? It's important to stop and understand, again, the kind of the drama that's going on here. Okay? Ten disciples know Jesus is raised from the dead. One disciple says, there just isn't any way. I'm not going to buy that. Now hear verse 26. That's, so that's the situation. Not unanimity in the church about whether or not Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. That's a pretty significant theological point, right? You even learned that in seminary, didn't you, Richard? Yeah. That's a, a significant theological point. But there is not unanimity in the church at the end of verse 25 about whether or not Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Now hear verse 26. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. I think you can make the case that the single most profound part of this whole story is what takes place between the end of verse 25 and the beginning of verse 26. Again, when verse 25 ends, there's not unanimity in the church about whether or not Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Ten disciples said, yes, he was. Thomas says, no. But verse 26 begins by saying, a week later, the disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. That means that the 11 disciples who were the whole church at that time did not agree about a significant theological point, but they were together anyway. They understand that it's more important for us to stay together and take care of each other and continue listening to each other than to agree with each other. I think that's a profound, amazing, countercultural feature of this story. Maybe it's, important, it's more important to be loving than it is to be right. Imagine living in a world where we all thought that was true. But the story goes on. So although the doors were shut, again, this is at the end of verse 26 now. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them again and said, Peace be with you. This is the third time now that Jesus says, peace be with you. You want to know what the peace looks like that Jesus gives to the disciples these three times that he says that? They understand in verse 26 that it's more important to be together than it is to agree with each other. It's more important to stay together and take care of each other than it is just to be sure we're all right about theological doctrines. That's what the peace of Christ looks like. Verse 27, then Jesus went to Thomas and said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt but believe. Do not doubt but believe. This is where the America part comes in this title, and it's not what you think it is, I don't think. We need to pause for just a second and think about what it means to believe. That's a word we use a lot, but we don't necessarily think clearly and with uh, we, we don't think about exactly what that means. That's sort of assent to some propositions or something. But let's talk about what it means to believe. Jesus says, do not doubt but believe. Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That's familiar language for us in this room, isn't it? We know... Americans have never all agreed about exactly what that meant. We never have agreed about that. But Americans never say, no, I don't believe that. 
Americans never say, no, I'm not going to buy that notion that all people are created equal. We've had all different kinds of arguments about exactly what that means, and we're never finished revisiting that idea, but nobody who says, no, that's false, gets to participate in our conversation. We live in a country who has decided to be a society, to live in a world where all people are created equal. We just decided. Thomas Jefferson does not offer proofs. He does not offer equations. There's no argument to say this is why all men are created equal. It's just a given. And we live our lives together in this country assuming that that's just true. We have decided to live together in a world where that is true. To believe in something is to live in a world where certain things are true. So at the end of verse 27, when Jesus tells Thomas, do not doubt but believe, essentially what he's doing is inviting Thomas for the first time to live in a world where Easter is true. Not get in line theologically with us, not say the right stuff, but just get your head around living in a world where Easter is true. And Thomas absolutely goes there. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, If you believe because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. That's him say, Jesus saying, Blessed are those who have chosen to live in a world where Easter is true, even if they haven't actually touched my hands or my side. Jesus is saying to all of them, Yes, blessed are those who have just decided to live in a world where Easter is true. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and through believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole story. I love those last two verses. This is John talking about why he wrote his gospel. He said, I didn't set out to write down everything Jesus ever did. John's telling us, his readers, I wrote these things down to invite you also to live in a world where Easter is true. I told you these stories to invite you to live in a world where sacrifice and service and forgiveness and grace really are part of the whole truth all day, every day. To live in a world where it's more important at the end of the day to be loving than it is to be right. To live in a world where death is real, but it's not the last word. I love that story. I think it's an excellent story. I think we are all invited by Jesus to live in a world where Easter is true. To live together in the peace of Christ that is the gift of the risen Christ to us in the church. We're invited to live together in a world where Easter is true. So now let's stand and sing together hymn number 757. Today we all are called to be disciples. <laughs>